As promised in episode 43, here's an interview with a chap called Sid Marshall. When I was down at the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, Yvonne Masters, the BBMF PR officer, suggested I have a chat with Sid, who's a volunteer guide down there, and what a great interview it turned out to be. I wasn't expecting to meet a World War II Lancaster crew member, so it was not only a pleasant surprise for me, but Sid had some great stories to tell about his time as a flight engineer on Lancaster bombers. So, for episode 45 of Flying Podcast, let's have a listen to Sid Marshall. Nice to meet you, Sid. You worked on Lancasters during the war? I flew on them. You flew Lancasters? Excellent. In what position? Flight engineer. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your life uh, on board Lancasters. And how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> Just wartime experiences. Yeah, okay. Well, actually, I, I think the reason I became a flight engineer was because... I left school at 14, I didn't go to grammar school or anything like that, any fancy like that. And I went to work for an engineering firm as an apprentice. So when the war came along, I was, I was actually, I left school in 1938 at the age of 14. And when the war started, it didn't really affect me very much because we lived in Lincolnshire and the war didn't happen up here, did it? We didn't see anything of the Battle of Britain or anything like that. And uh, see, it right, seems strange to me that uh, I had two big pals and we all decided about the same time to join up. One went in the army, the other one went in the navy and I went in the air force. Why God knows? Because uh, as it went along and my uh, chap who went into the army disappeared into Burma and never saw him for about three years. The other chap became an Aztec operator on a destroyer and he was down in the bowels of a ship and he appeared and disappeared. And, and of course, uh, me, I lived in Boston in Lincolnshire, which is not very far from here. And when I finished my training, I was back in Lincolnshire. <laughs> I was here flying on operations. I was only about 50 or 60 miles from home. Which seemed, when you think about it, it's a funny way to fight a war. Yep. I could be at home with my family one night and probably with Germany the next. And so you thought you'd made the right decision there, joining the RAF? Well, I think so. I was a bit influenced by my father. He'd been in the uh, army in World War One. And he'd been wounded a couple of times and had a terrible time in the trenches and that sort of thing. And I said to him one day, I think I'm going to try and join the Air Force. He said, well, take my tips on it. He said, whatever you do, he said, I'm sure you're riding, not walking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he, he really thought at the time the idea, the riding I had in mind was not probably what he would have wished for. And of course, like everybody else, I wanted to be a pilot. Anyway... Two things went against me. One, I hadn't been to grammar school. Although I'd been doing, uh, as an engineer, I'd been uh, night school, I'd done uh, math, science and technical drawing and that, which was a big help. Probably fitted me for a navigator, really, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And of course, when you were interviewed, uh, you first of all, you have to pass this dreadful medical, they don't quite turn you inside out, but very nearly, <laughs> they do their best. And... Uh, you pass that all right, and then you, you I had to sit a written exam. It seems strange in the middle of a war, they want people, and they seem to be doing everything they can to turn you away. Yeah. Anyway, I passed that all right, and then you get to the point where you go before the panel of officers and they say, Right, young man, what would you like to do? What are your ambitions? I said, I'd like to become a pilot. Shuffle, 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 you know, and of course, then you tell them what you'd like to do, and then they tell you what they what tell you what you're going, you're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> he said, Well, 
you could if you really insisted with this every seven or eight months before we can call you up because it's such a long waiting list. This is all part of the talking you round to their way of thinking, isn't it? But he said, I see you've been an engineer and he asked me a bit about that. I said, well, I'm very, very, you know, I'm not a technical man really. I, I can build and strip and rebuild an engine and that sort of thing. He said, you would be more used to us as a flight engineer. And I said, I was hoping to fly. Well, he said, you will get to fly the aircraft. Not a lot, but... <laughs> <laughs> Honest. Yeah. But I promise. Yeah. I did, actually, but not a lot. And that was really how I came to be. So uh, it was designated that I would go and become a flight engineer. Well, we won't skip through that. We, we, you sort of... Uh, when he joined up, I found myself on Boston Station one day in the middle of the suitcase. And I was an 18-year-old. 18 year old. I was very naive, really. I'd never been away from home before. You get on the train that's going to take me to King's Cross and thence on to St John's Wood. Because the place you actually joined, it was the uh, Lord's Cricket Ground. Which uh, is the only time I've ever been on the place, you know, to be honest. <laughs> and from there on, we uh, did our square bashing at uh, uh, Bridlington, and then it was to St Hathnall. Well, she spent about seven months of slog, seven days a week, uh, technical all technical training. At the end of that we got we got to do a bit of flying in Anderson. I always remember the first time we got in the Anderson was uh, there was about six of us went up in this Anderson with a pilot. Everybody wanted to sit beside the pilot till they found out you've got to turn this bloody handle at the side about a hundred and god knows how many times for one you only carriage on. You know, nobody wanted to sit <laughs> This is the and of course by the time it was only a short flight, by the time we got the thing round it, we had to wind it down again. <laughs> I think it did it on purpose. <laughs> That's the sort of thing they're doing. Well, we haven't completed that. We had to go and we had, a, we had a test. It was divided up into sections and you were marked on all these sections. I did quite well in my course. I got well over 70%, one of the top marks, really. It wasn't surprising because I mean, the engineering wasn't all that new to me. <laughs> and. Uh, I was interviewed to see if I was fit for a commission. Well, as soon as I found out I hadn't been to Grand School, that put the kibosh on that. So I, that was as far as I got with that. So then our wings parade consisted of going into the stores where we were given a couple of breveries, a handful of stripes and told you so on. <laughs> and from then on, the best part was that you went from three shillings a day to twelve and sixpence a day. We thought we'd got a fortune. <laughs> And that was a sergeant. Anybody told you how you crewed up? What the procedure was? Well, I'd imagine that they'd stick a notice board up and you're going to fly with sergeant or flight lieutenant so and so. But they didn't. I didn't join the crew because they'd been together for a while flying Wellingtons. And of course, there's nowhere for a flight engineer or a middle gunner. So when I wound up at a place called Santoft, it was known locally as Prangtoft because they had so many accidents there. It seemed suitable anyway, didn't it? And then we, uh, I hadn't got a crew then, they put a, they'd got a crew apparently, they got the, their middle for gunner, they wanted an engineer. So they put about 20 engineers in a room with a similar number of pilots, there was no furniture, you milled around and they said sort yourselves out, which I thought was quite nice. Anyway, he walked around and chatted to some people and one bloke approached me and said, have you got fixed up? And I said, I didn't like the look of him much. Well, I think I, I thank you very much for asking. 
So I wandered around a bit and uh, talked with a few people. And again, there was a young Canadian was sitting on there, sitting on the floor, leaning on the wall, because there was nothing to sit on. And uh, I nodded to him and he nodded back and I said hello and he said hello. And I thought, it's a good idea, I'll take the weight off my feet. So I sat down, we got chatting, we talked for quite a while. And uh, he got up and he said, and he's very drolly, Calgary, he's from Calgary. He said, you best come and meet the rest of the guys, and that was it. <laughs> and I don't know to this day whether I chose him or me, <laughs> but we got on extremely well together. Yep. And then we went on to, uh, the next thing that really put a spoke in my wheel was, the last part of our training, for about a month, we were split into groups, Halifax, Lancaster, Stirling, whatever. And I was typed onto Lancaster. So we had to be able to go into the Lancaster in blindfold, find everything, because you know lights on when you're flying at night, do you? So you had to know where everything was by feel and that sort of thing. And we got there and I found out we were going to fly Halifaxes, <laughs> which is not a big help, is it? So, to put it rudely, I knew bugger all about Halifaxes. It was totally different. With a Lancaster, you sit beside the pilot. With an Halifax, you don't, not, you don't even sit with him. You can't do a lot for him. Anyway, the only thing about the Halifax was there's more room in it, isn't there? It's quite roomy. So we did about 60-odd hours flights. We did cross-country. We did all the usual things. We did a couple of sea searches, looking for down flyers over the North Sea and things like that. And then we uh, passed out on that. And, of course, you start off... You've got a, a screen, that's just uh, instructor pilot, and then you've got an instructor engineer as well, So, and you've got a navigator and a bomber, there's about six of you in the cockpit, milling around, there's hardly room for Thor, is there? <laughs> you know, it is. Have you been in the land? I have, yes. Yeah, there's not a lot of room. Not a lot of room, no. Yeah. Anyway, we got over that middle run, we went to Hemswell, where we did what was called Lank Finishing School. Well, there's nothing like a young lady's finishing show, all it. And we weren't there very long. We only, we only arrived, I think it was only there, about a week. And uh, we actually got out of the circuit. I believe a couple of times we went on to Reed Island, that's in the middle of the Humber, isn't it? And dropped a few practice bombs, did circuits and landings. And we went to, a, we were then posted to a squadron. We had actually nine hours and 25 minutes flying time on Lanks. That was a six end of our training. <laughs> from then on we didn't operate I mean I've heard people say oh we arrived in the morning we was on opposite night but it didn't like, wasn't like that with us I think the main reason wasn't at that time not all Lanks had H2S you know the radar yep. but the squadron I went to did I went to 103 squadron Elsham Wells which was the wettest coldest muckiest muddiest probably most least inviting place you can find <laughs> It's on top of a hill, isn't it? And we were in billets about a mile and a half from the camp. It was dispersed site. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a very nice place at all, really. Anyway, we had to do a few cross-country nuts sort of thing because we'd never seen the H2S. And, of course, you know the bomb aimer is the operator, isn't it? Which made a lot of difference to me, the jobs I had to do as an engineer. So we went off, did a few nights on, stooges round, get the hang of the H2S and then uh, eventually we got to uh, what was strangely enough was one of the biggest operations ever in October 44 this was they sent uh, 
the RAF sent just over a thousand Lancasters and, and uh, heavy bombers anyway to Duisburg. Then my pilot went on that as second dickie. He went with another crew as second pilot, which they did one trip. That was his final bit of training, wasn't it? Then the Americans went in to the same target, Duisburg area. They took 12, over 1,200 bombers and about 750 fighters to escort them. And then we went on the third wave. This is all in about 36 hours. You may have read about it, have you? Yep. And uh, this is getting around to the site. We went out, it's going to be a night job, but of course we, went, we took off before it was dark. And uh, they sent another thousand Lancasters and Halifaxes with a few mozzies mixed in for marking and that sort of thing. And I remember we passed underneath the Yanks, they, they flew higher than we did. We passed underneath them, and there must have been 3,000 aircraft in the air all at the same time, which is a sight I shall never see again in the yeah. And that was, it was impressive, that was. And of course, I think by the time we got there the second time, there was such a hell of a mess on the ground. It, it was a fairly easy trip, really. And uh, that was my introduction to operations. Now, in the course of the, the time we were together, we totaled up, we did 36 operations. Yeah. We'd done about 27, and the skipper came in one day and he said, the wing commander just called him in and ask him if he was prepared to do a full... Ask him to volunteer, this is the thing. They ask you to volunteer, don't they? To do a few more trips. So we thought at that time we'd only got three more to do. Now we've got nine more to do. <laughs> but I'll be honest, I think it gave him a choice. Rather than come back for a second tour, I'd rather have gone straight on. Because you get out of the habit, you've got to do it all over again, probably with a new crew. And that was not good. I can remember when we did finish, you were usually, uh, again I was put up for commission, never did get it. My engineer leader said to me one day when I'd done about 20 trips, he said, when are you put in for your commission? Well, I said, I've been up once and I didn't want to know, so what's the point? So he recommended me, and it doesn't happen overnight. I didn't, you started that interview with the flight commander, then the squadron commander, station commander, and then the AOC. Well, by the time I got to that, we finished a tour, so I went home on leave. And it gave you about six weeks leave. And uh, when I finished my leave, I went back again, and I had an interview with the station commander and the AOC. And as far as I know, I never heard another thing about it, because I think the war was practically over, mm -hmm. and I think that probably killed me off that time. So I never did get there. I got... I think they're present to me, they gave me my crown and I finished me up to that was about that was about the extent of it. What were your feelings you know, flying over, over Germany at night? Were you petrified on, on each tour or did you get you used to it after time? I mean it's like I said to Lou when he was over here, because I mean we weren't very old, were we? Yeah. When I finished my tour with Luke, he was twenty one and I was twenty and we'd finished. So I mean that was about average age, wasn't it? Yeah. The oldest member of the crew was my navigator, and I really don't know how old he was. He was married, and he probably probably thirty, and a schoolmaster. Yeah, a lot of them were, weren't they? The rest of us all about. Well, I wasn't the youngest in the crew. The wildest lot was younger than me. But uh, well, what you feel is well. 
excitement, I think. But it may be a strange thing to say, but when you've been doing it for a while, it becomes normal. Anything becomes normal if you do it often enough, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, sure. And I think uh, you also, you feel that you're you're all right, it's going up to the other guy, don't you? I think the thing that ran home to me more than anything, our last but one trip, it was a daylight to Mannheim. And we were flying alongside our hook mates. We, you usually shared a hook with another crew. They had one side and we had the other. Yeah. And you hurled insults at one another and exchanged cigarettes. And mm-hmm. you know, if you ask the Canadians, I've got a cig, you took your 20 packet. They usually <laughs> boxed it on under the bed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we are flying at Thompson, flying after Thompson. And we were now more than, well, 100 yards away from when they were shot down. And we saw two parachutes get out, but you haven't got time to look around, have you? Mm-hmm. They were shot, they were hit by a flak and went down. But uh, uh, this was the second time it had happened. What well, in the previous occasion, we didn't know anything had happened to the other crew. And we just get in bed, you, when you come back, you eventually get to bed, usually early hours of the morning. Just about asleep, and the crash door comes out, and the lights go on. The station adjutant comes in with a couple of military police and start collecting all the kit up. That's always a bad sign. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I don't see how I did. It, it was an experience. It was something I know you'll never forget. Some of the things that happened to us were around bloody fault, really. I don't usually. This isn't going to be published, is it? Suddenly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is perfectly true. Well, most of the crew are dead now, so they won't worry. This was entirely around fault. While I was with it, Luke, we had his 21st birthday. And we used to go into Scunthorpe, because it was a. And we used to go to a place called the Oswald Hotel, have you heard of it? No. It was a bit of a den of iniquity, naturally. <laughs> that's naturally, that's where we went. <laughs> And sometimes we used to go in there, they had a direct line to headquarters, I'm sure they did, because if there was a stand down that uh, meant you weren't flying, there was always a band and a singer and yeah. plenty of staff on, you know. They knew when you weren't flying. We went in there to celebrate Luke 21st birthday, well, of course, we drank far too much, naturally. And we're all about pie-eyed we managed to find a way back to the bus and get back to Elsham again and the next day you get up feeling like death don't you and uh, <coughs> you know we probably won't fly tonight but of course it's sod's law as they say isn't it we did the part where your first intimation you got if you've been flying the night before you did get up about dinner time because probably three four o'clock in the morning before you got to bed we got up in the morning and uh, feeling like death didn't go to breakfast managed to squeeze us out in for lunch and when he went into the mess there was a blackboard and it would say one of two things flying meals shall we say 1600 briefing 1730 and on the end of it was a, a sheet a battle order that was the list of listed everybody in all the crew and if your name was on there you were flying that night and our name was on the list and they were flying that, oh my God. I mean, you can't go to the CEO and say, look, we had a rough night last night, we're not fit to go. You can't really do that, can you? So, and of course, it was winter time. It was December. 
the 6th of December, I shall never forget the date, 6th of December. And we went, <coughs> so we went to uh, primary, we went to briefing, and whether there anybody, or any, I don't know, I think that the best thing was the navigator hadn't been with us, he'd been to see his wife. So he was pretty compassmentous, he at least knew where we were supposed to be going. <laughs> and we went out of the aircraft, it was quite common if the weather was bad. The CEO would come round, sorry chaps, it's been put back an hour. Then the naffy one would come round with, you got a wad, that was a, something between a cake and a, and a uh, piece of pastry with about two currants in it, wasn't it? And a hard as bricks <laughs> and a cup of coffee. Well, they'd been round and we thought, oh, well, it'll be cancelled, it's bound to be cancelled, but it wasn't. So we got on, we went off. When we got there, we were right, we dropped to bombs. And I can't, for the life of me, remember where we went now. I wish I had my logbook with me. But, uh, we turned for home, and I told you about lure flying. I could fly the aircraft in the air. I was, well, mainly by the pilot. It was up to the pilot, really, because you only had one pilot. Yeah. And he told me to fly it. But I could fly this and keep it straight and level and on course. I'd never landed one running like that. And uh, we come along, and Luke was looking about several shades of green. He said, "You'll have to take over." He said, "I'm ill." Well, I wasn't very much better at recording. Anyway, and of course it's not easy, you don't just get out of the seat. The pilot's trussed up like a chicken, isn't he? He's got his May West on tied round his waist and in between his legs, butt all tied up. He's then got his parachute on his son over his shoulders, round his waist, between his legs again, into the quick release box. And then you've got the sutton harness which strapped you into the aeroplane. He's trussed up like a chicken ready for the oven, isn't there? So we had to undo all the straps. And of course he sits on his parachute, doesn't he? So he clambered out, we put the automatic pilot in, he clambered out the seat, and, he, and I clambered in, and I thought, well, I'd better not leave it on auto, because if I have to do anything, can't do anything, can I? So we took the automatic pilot out, and we were okay, it was dark, mind you, but I mean, you understood the instruments, we flying on instruments, and you can sometimes see a bit of a dim light and I thought, well, it won't be long, he'll be back in a minute or two, I won't bother to strap myself in even. So I sat on the seat there and we rumbled along all the And all at once, look, I didn't wear Luke, was he went back to the Elson, I think. You know, the Elson train at the back, I think he'd been sick. And Anyway, and uh, all at once, the start, the <coughs> port wing dropped. Start, sorry, starboard wing dropped like a stone. I don't know what caused it, but I do believe I got in the slipstream of another aeroplane. Well, I didn't react, react quick enough, and the next thing I knew was going down, and all I knew was that the airspeed was going up, and the uh, compass was turning, so we were obviously going down in a spiral. And uh, I got it straightened up, but of course when I wanted to pull back on the stick, I wasn't strapped in. I couldn't pull back on the stick, and I was pulling like hell, and all at once, Mark and Luke arrived at the side of me on his hands and knees, so I was struggling around the trimmer back. Well, of course, we got it out of the dive, and then, of course, I wasn't ready for it. The trip was hopelessly out of trim, but the next thing was stalled, and when the wing dropped again, and we repeated this, fortunately, we were about 20,000 feet when it started, and... Uh, in the end, so in May, I my ring to come bald. Pen came out, so I couldn't talk to him. And between us, we managed to get the bloody thing straightened up again, and we got home. 
and of course uh, we didn't say anything to anybody about it yeah yeah quiet trip nothing much happened you know <laughs> so we went back off to bed and it was dark when we landed now we scrambled out got in the groobers and rugged off as I say and the next morning or uh, uh, the next day I was in the engineer's office you know, we should go in each group had a leader, had an engineer leader, gunnery leader and so on. And Jock Brihenny was a great, he was a splendid bloke. I think he'd been a used car salesman or something like that, I didn't believe him. <laughs> he was a character, I tell you. <laughs> Nothing worried him. And he, he'd, fight his, he'd fight our corner, he'd do anything for you. He was a brilliant bloke. We were all sitting in his office having a natter and walking, poked his head round the door and beckoned me out. So I went out and he, he looked a bit serious. He said, we've got to see the wing commander. So, <laughs> tails between your legs, you know. Goes into the wing co's office and of course, when you're in trouble, they always sit right in for a bit, let you stew a bit. <laughs> so, he finally looked at me, he said, what the hell happened to you blokes last night? Well, you know, I had a bit of a rough time once or twice, you know, a bit of turbulence, that sort of thing. <laughs> Oh, he said, so we got into his car and drove out to the dispersal. And when we got there, we walked underneath the aircraft. You know, the, the fuel tanks were in the wings, aren't they? Well, they're only held in with straps, like a car tank. You might, a couple of straps around, hold it in. Mind you, he gets 300 gallons of petrol in the tank. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? In the course of pulling it out, well, I don't know what speed we got up to, I need time to look at that, but there'd been so much pressure on there, the traps had burst on the tank and it started to push through the bottom of the wing. <laughs> and that was, but there's more. We take it around to the back of the aircraft, you know the wing and tail should be like that, you know what it was like that, it twisted the fuse latch. <laughs> and it wasn't a lot, but it was obviously twisted, it had twisted just beyond the around the middle of the turret where the floor of the bomb floor finishes it's a bit weak you see I mean you'll see aircraft with that broken off don't you <laughs> fortunately it didn't break off it just twisted it a bit but uh, the upshot of it was that uh, Morgan got a, a red endorsement in his logbook <laughs> I got a bollocking from the, <laughs> the engineer later and do you know, it was never mentioned again. Not a, not a said a word about it. We got a brand new aircraft. That was LM272, which I've, I don't probably, it does say it was damaged. It doesn't say... <laughs> by who? No, it doesn't say by who. Self-inflicted, I'm afraid. And uh, it was never mentioned again. Never said a word about it. <laughs> but there you go. Bloody silly youngsters, isn't it? That's all it was, isn't it? So apart from self-inflicted, did you, did you ever come close to getting shot uh, down? Yeah, well, we got hit the very first time we went out over to uh, Duisburg. We got hit on an engine, which is a good start, isn't it? A piece of shrapnel went straight through the side of the engine, made a hole in the cylinder crankcase about that big. The oil all splashed out, got on the red hot on it from manifold and started to burn. So I was down in the course of chucking window I used to spend a lot of time sitting in the now chucking window out you know when I was a ten. and I was doing that the bomb aim was down in the nose on his bombing run I was poking window out sitting on the step behind him and all the shadows said come on look at this engine I looked and there was flame bloody hell there's flames coming out of there so I looked at the uh, I just quickly glanced at my instruments didn't tell me a lot I thought well there's only one thing sorry so I feathered the engine you, I mean, you, 
you close the throttle, shut the fuel off, and when it stops, nearly turning, you feather it. And then, and only then do you press the fire, because in each nacelle there's two fire extinguishers. Press the button for the fire extinguisher and it went out. I mean, it was oil, if it had been petrol, it probably wouldn't have gone out, would it? But, so that was a, a bit of a lucky one, wasn't it? We did have a, we had a few capers we got to, we got set about by a fighter when we were mine laying, because you do, we used to go mine laying was a totally different thing. And this is the sort of thing where I got to, to do all sorts of jobs. You're a bit of a jack of all trades, really, as an engineer, aren't you? Because if you ever had to drop the bombs and you couldn't see the markers, you could use the radar. If you could, I mean, there was usually, if there was a master bomber, he would direct, and they even drop sky, you know, sky markers, Wanganui, as they called it. Now, this is a this is Heath Robinson, if there was anything. They drop a parachute flare and tell you to aim at that, open at the trajectory it goes through there, but of course, if there's any wind, it's gone, isn't it? And if you couldn't do anything else, you're allowed to use the bombs, drop the bombs by using the radar, the H2S. On one occasion, I can remember we, the weather was absolutely dreadful, really. I suppose we really never ought to have gone, but in those days, weather forecasting isn't what it is now, was it? So we were going on. The bomb aimer is a radar operator, so now he's got a problem. He wants to bound the nose to drop the bombs, but he's operating the radar. So I have to go down into the nose. I know what to do because he's shown me. You had to smash the bomb doors open. Well, he did that anyway. And they panel along the side, you've got switches, you fuse the bombs or mines or whatever they are, and then you uh, use the bomb site, possibly. But if you're going to drop them on the radar, all they do is I do, I do what he says. I've got the bomb, I've fused the bombs, I've got the bomb doors open, I've got the release button in my hand, I can't see anything because it's cloudy, and he gives you a countdown. Drop and you just press the button, and that's it. So I'd, that was another job I had sometimes. <laughs> we had another occasion once when we were, we were sent to mine the mouth of the L. The reason I believe was at that time the Germans were in Denmark and Norway, weren't they? And they used to take, there was a lot of shipping going across the Baltic to supply the troops there. So we did either one or two things, rather mine the Elbe or one of the other uh, rivers. We did a, we did uh, mine Cuxhaven once, that wasn't very nice. That's a naval base and everything else. So as a go at you, including the boats in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> Not very nice at all. But uh, on this other occasion where we were sent to mine Aris, which is Denmark, isn't it? So you, you don't drop mines in the sea because there's no point, is it? It's either got to be the mouth of a river or a harbour or something. And what he used to do then was to, uh, again, use a radar, so it's another time I'd have to drop the mines. You track along the coast until you find a prominent feature, and then you turn under a predetermined heading, do a timed run, and drop the mines. And that's how to do it. So um, this is uh, the, I mean, uh, it's another case where the bombing has got to be in the <laughs> on his radar set again, isn't it? So a lot of interchanging went around like that, really. But uh, if you get a good crew, and I think we had a good, I don't think it was exceptional, but you get to trust one another. What nobody liked was having a stranger in the crew, a spare bot, as they call them, spare body. But if anybody was ill or wounded or anything like that, well. 
there was always somebody around who lost his crew or, or was a spare body and they were to be put in the crew but you you don't know how they're going to react do you they're probably all right but we were very lucky we never had anybody injured never had anybody ill so apart from self-inflicted illness <laughs> <laughs> Now that is the first time I've told anybody about that, is it? <laughs> and my dad tells me stories about when he was in the Navy during the war and when I listen to his stories I wonder how we were on the winning side, to be quite... <laughs> yeah. Oh no. No, it's quite amazing, really. You were very lucky to go... How many how many uh, operations did you do in all? 36. <clears throat> yes, I think uh, probably things were getting a bit easier, but I wouldn't say easy. Uh, what do you do now, Sid? You work at the BBMF? I do. I've just I just got my twenty year tanker, did not I? Yeah. And what do you do here? Uh, tour guide. Yeah. For the uh, well, we we actually it's a funny arrangement. We actually are organised. I won't say paid by. We do. Yeah, we're paid mileage, and that's not talking. That's driving. Mileage. No, I've, uh, we're organised by the Lincolnshire County Council. They run the shop and all that, mm -hmm. but we do the tours inside the la inside the hangar. No, I was going to. I didn't tell you about the time we encountered a fight. Yeah, carry on. I'll well, it's just it. one more little story. I got off onto telling you how mining was done, didn't I? We went to uh, mine. I think it was off the Elbe, in this case, and we got. We'd found our turning point. We were on the actual mining run. I was down in the nose, Bombing was sitting behind the nav with the navigator, because the navigator had a bench there and he'd got a seat in our lunk, hasn't he? Mm -hmm. He had a bench for two. And the radar set was actually just beyond the pilot's seat. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're just getting nasty, we've turned onto our time run, and all the fronts the rear gunner shouts out, dive. Well, you'd only about 1400 feet dropping, mind you can't dive, can you? So, Polly did a pretty severe turn to port, and the fighter fired at us just as it, and you know when you go, the wing goes up and the tail goes up, and he took the top off the fin and the tip off the wing. And uh, then he went past us, and I've memory seen it's like going over my right shoulder, and thinking that's a bit close, and then this dark shape went. Well, of course, we turned, we'd lost the tracking and we had to turn, go out to sea, come back in again. And he went the other way and he never saw him anymore. Oh, I didn't know this, but one of our aircraft was very, fairly close to us and the chap in the rear turret saw it all happen. And it happens to be the other, a, a, uh, he just died incidentally. He was in the rear turret of this other Lancaster and uh, years and years afterwards I was talking to him and he related his side of it, he saw it all happen. Yeah. It didn't really cause us any trouble, I mean, it didn't disable the aircraft anyway, but it just shows a split second later and we'd probably have had us, wouldn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. But it just, it's a lot of luck. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Well, it's been a great pleasure to meet you, an honour, I would say. Oh, thank you. Is that enough for you? That's perfect, thank yeah, you very much. Okay. Well, that was a real treat listening to Sid's stories. Uh, I could have stayed there for hours. I find those first-hand stories of uh, wartime experiences fascinating, and I hoped you enjoyed listening to Sid. What a great bloke. And if you'd like to see Sid and his uh, fellow volunteers at the BBMF, you know what to do. Get on down to the uh, BBMF Museum at RAF Coningsby for a superb day out. 
Have a look at the BBMF website for details of what's on offer, or if you haven't already, listen to episode 43. Well, that's it for episode 45 of Flying Podcast. Thanks again to Sid for sparing the time to share his stories, especially the one uh, he hadn't told anyone before. Keep your mails coming. It's great to hear from you all. Uh, The email address, as you probably know, is steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Send your comments or suggestions for future episodes to that address too. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon.